Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I'm excited because NFL football is back, and that means, of course, fantasy football is back. Uh, so with football back, fantasy football back, I am a happy man. Uh, I'm in the Phoenix area today and tomorrow, uh, and then I'm headed off to Allen, Texas on Wednesday before headed home on Thursday. So this will end uh, a two-week trip home for exactly one day and headed out on Friday. Uh, upcoming uh, PD events to remind you of. If you want to get a jump on the PD this fall and get registered, there's still time to register for the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training in Jonesboro, Arkansas. That'll be September 25th and 26th. If you want to join me in Charleston, South Carolina, that'll be October 11th and 12th. And of course, St. Louis, Missouri, December 6th and 7th, that will be facilitated by Natalie Vardabasso. Uh, the Standards-Based Learning in Action two-day training, that'll be in Seattle, Washington, October 16th and 17th. Of course, I have links in the show notes for all of those events. I continue to remind you also that my latest book, Redefining Student Accountability, is out. I've got a link in the show notes for that book as well. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. Big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate all of you. Uh, this week is another solo episode. There are just scheduling hiccups that are happening, so trying to work through that. I should be back on track with interviews and guests on the September 25th episode, but until then, you've got me for another solo episode. In the main segment today, I'm going to talk a little bit about how my view of school discipline has evolved over the years, and in Assessment Corner, I'm going to talk about why we should judge holistically when making summative judgments. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. In this week's Mindset Minute, I want to focus on the idea of acting toward. Now, last time I talked about the idea of acting as if, right? Acting as if what you want to have happened has actually happened. So you can generate the thoughts that produce the emotions that you'd have if what you want to have happen actually happened. Now, another key concept to go along with this is that you have to act toward the life you want. This is, as I said last time, not a magic trick where you just think it and poof, it all unfolds. If I've learned anything through my life, it's that sustained thoughts of and sustained actions towards what you want is how it manifests. Now, here's an example of an exchange I have sometimes with people. Not a lot, but it does happen from time to time. I have people say to me, oh, I'd love to write a book. And then I think to myself, well, just do it. But my response is usually something enthusiastic, like, well, yeah, do it. It's one of the most challenging yet rewarding things you'll ever do. And then the person will say, well, I just don't know where to start. And I said, well, just start. Like, put your fingers to the keyboard and get going. Don't worry about it being perfect. Just get started and start writing. And then they might say, well, it's, it seems really hard. And I'll say, it is. But you can't write a book without putting your fingers on a keyboard or at least sketching an outline. Oh, I don't know. Do you have an expertise in any specific area? Not really. Have you ever thought about developing one? I have, but I'm just so busy. It's not going to happen. Full stop. No attempt to write and nothing to write about, yet they say, I'd love to write a book. Do you hear the disconnect? I'm not saying this to be rude or dismissive. It's just an example of how inaction can actually neutralize all of the positive visioning you do. 
all the mindset in the world will not produce anything if you don't actually act towards what you want. You see, if you were actually a writer, you would actually be writing. Writers write. Painters paint. This is not a Jedi mind trick. The sequence or the combination for me is always this. To create it, we have to think it, to feel it. When we feel it, we need to act it. Wanting without purposeful action is going to be pointless. If you were what you wanted to be, you'd actually be doing it. You wouldn't want to be doing it, right? Being in a perpetual state of want is not where you want to sit. It's, it's I am, not want. I am a successful author, not I want to be a successful author. Can you hear the difference? I am a successful author versus I want to be a successful author. When you keep saying am, you will start compelling yourself to act because you won't want to be a hypocrite to yourself, right? You're not going to want to say those things but then not be those things, right? So remember, when you act as if, you also have to act toward. One of the biggest lessons I've learned in my career has to do with how I viewed school discipline. As a classroom teacher, and for the first part of my stint as a school-based administrator, I saw discipline as something we did to students. That when students misbehaved, they needed to be disciplined. It was about control, it was about isolation, and sometimes it was about removal, if that were necessary. We needed to rein them in and discipline them. Discipline as more a verb, right? An action that I take on or against you. Now, the epiphany for me was that real discipline is about support and inclusion, not removal and isolation. When I learned that I could be tough and demanding without being punitive, that was a real shift for me in my career. That's real discipline. Our systems should lead students to becoming disciplined, not being disciplined. Right? And of course, a lot of that coincided with my growth with sound assessment and grading practices, no doubt, as I started to transition away from punitive grading and to be more attentive to the accuracy of my assessment and grading practices and be more attentive to the potential negative emotional impact of punitive actions, both academically and behaviorally, I started to realize that conflating tough with being punitive was unnecessary. Now, it's understandable that we do that, It's easy to see why it happens, but again, being tough and punitive need not be synonymous. I talk about this a lot when it comes to student accountability, and especially in my new book. When you create systems that hold students accountable and you're unwilling to waver away from that, students quickly realize, oh, they're serious. They're not going away. Now, creating the conditions for students to become disciplined is not, as some might suggest, soft, not in the slightest. Creating expectations of performance and then clearly articulating that expectation is the bar and that falling short of that bar is going to be met with the simple expectations of reaching the bar. That's how we operate. The expectation is unwavering. Now there are of course exceptions to that and there are some students who are going to need more support in being able to reach those behavioral sort of performance levels if you will or those expectations. There are students for whom the expected levels of Uh, behavioral expectations or social norms uh, is unreasonable. And and we have to be aware of that. That, Those are the exceptions, right? Uh, But that will be more the exception than the rule. 
So it really is something where everyone can follow through on the expectations for conduct in the school. And there's nothing wrong with involving students in creating those expectations or those norms. And we can talk about that a little bit later. There may be times, look, there may be times where removal is necessary short term. As my career in administration progressed, I learned to ask myself the following question whenever any serious or chronic behavioral incidents would, would occur or emerge. I would ask this question. Is it necessary to remove this student from the school environment? If I'm being honest, more often than not, the answer was no. Oh, there were times when it was yes, of course. If there happened to be a conflict between two students, say they got into a fight or something like that, and they needed a cooling off period, well, in that case, we might consider a short-term removal uh, just to kind of get things settled. Or in the case of some kind of harassment or bullying or something like that, we might think to ourselves, okay, we need a day or two to put a plan in place for both students or groups of students or whatever. So in those cases, we may remove, we may isolate temporarily, but it's done for, for um, very specific reasons. However, the vast majority of time, as I started to ask that question, it was unnecessary. Now, early in my career as a school administrator, I was a lot quicker on the trigger when it came to suspensions for a number of different reasons. First, that was the norm. Uh, if you stepped out of line in any serious way, you were suspended and it went on your permanent record, <laughs> which wasn't really a thing. You know, I know a letter would go in their file and all of that procedural stuff, but it was interesting how parents worried so much about their child's permanent record. Um, as I learned from more veteran colleagues, uh, what the assistant principal job entailed, it, it, it seemed to be all about being punitive and maintaining order. Now, the second reason uh, I was pretty quick on the trigger when it came to suspensions was it would have worked for me. When I was in school, I was heavily invested in playing sports and getting suspended would have interrupted that. I would have been in trouble with my parents. I would have been in trouble with my coaches. So the threat of suspension worked on me. So I made the incorrect assumption early in my career that how I viewed suspension would be how all students viewed suspension. I found out early on that many students weren't that afraid of it like I was, that the threat to some was not really a threat at all. And the third reason why I was quick on the trigger when it came to suspension was I didn't know what else to do. I hadn't yet learned about restorative practices or positive discipline and or PBIS and all the other things that were to come for me in my career in the early part of the 2000s. Now that was on me. I lacked the depth and breadth of understanding of how to be more creative uh, with the way we quote unquote handled discipline, right? So as I started to learn, I became more thoughtful about how I responded to antisocial behavior. And again, a reminder, pro-social behavior is when you act in alignment with social norms and expectations. Antisocial behavior, it's not just being antisocial. Antisocial behavior is when we violate um, social norms and expectations. One thing we were not talking about when I was in school administration was, and this is going back, you know, 15 years or so, one thing we were not talking about was how those in-school social norms evolved. We were not talking about how we might ensure that our social norms were culturally responsive and expansive um, and how those social norms kind of developed. Now, one person who has really helped me understand this today, of course, is Zaretta Hammond. You, she's been on the podcast, and longtime listeners might recall the conversation about cultural archetypes. I used her work when I wrote about this in Redefining Student Accountability. And I don't pretend to be an expert on how we make 
our social norms culturally responsive and expansive, but we certainly need to talk about it. Now, as a reminder, the archetypes, of course, there are cultures that emphasize the individual, cultures that emphasize the collective, there are cultures that emphasize the written tradition, cultures that represent emphasize the oral tradition. Now the written versus oral tradition is not really that relevant when it comes to the behavioral side of the ledger. Uh, so the focus here would be more on the individual and the collective. And we need to interrogate a little bit where our behavioral expectations came from and we need to interrogate them in a couple of ways. One would be, are our school-wide expectations too individualistic in nature? Like are there any places where we could lean a little bit to the collective? Now, if not, then maybe the second place we interrogate is to say, could we recalibrate our responses to be more understanding of those who come from a culture who emphasize the collective uh, versus the individual, right? You think of those students who help other students. If you come from a culture that emphasizes the collective, when you see someone that needs help, you help them. Now, in some cases, we might call that cheating in school. And I'm not saying it's okay but what I am saying is if we're going to emphasize the individual, could we just measure our responses a little and be mindful that every act toward the collective is not necessarily malicious in its intent? Or, you know, what about a situation where a student steps in to help a friend? Let's say a friend's in conflict. Maybe there's two people in a fight and you see your friend in a fight. So you might step in and, and defend your friend. Um, and that might be interpreted as ganging up or jumping in or making the odds unfair, but that's that's sort of part of, of their, their being, which is I saw my friend needing help and I helped them. Now, of course, there are a million iterations of this, and that's why each incident has to be given its due and we can't have these blanket or generic responses. It's so funny how, you know, I look back on my career and I see how there are these so-called automatic responses that really weren't that. Throughout most of my career as a school administrator in School District 67 I, in, in Penticton, I used to hear so much about the automatic five-day suspension. That was board policy. And a lot of times it had to do with fighting and drugs and alcohol and things like that. But I'd hear about that and I actually bought into that and started just the automatic five-day suspension. And then when I started working at central office and I was responsible for student discipline, that was part of my portfolio, I realized there was no such policy. <laughs> so principals would call me and say, but this is an automatic five-day suspension. And I have to remind them that there is no such thing, no such policy. But it is interesting how that kind of whips around a district and people just start to believe that. They just believe that there is this automatic policy. And I don't think having an automatic policy is thoughtful at all. It's taking every situation and understanding the nuances and the idiosyncrasies of that situation. Usually, the fear of suspension is only motivating the students already not getting suspended. Anyway, so when we look at discipline as something we are trying to help students become rather than something we do to them, we're going to see it differently. And you're going to respond differently will be more instructional and help our students find a pro-social replacement behavior for, or, or some sort of action that satisfies their emotions, but doesn't violate established norms. Students have the right to their feelings. Like they have a right to be angry, to be sad, to be frustrated, or whatever the emotions are. What they don't have the right to do is act in an antisocial way as a result of those emotions. We don't 
support the idea of violating established expectations. So we have to teach our students pro-social ways of responding when they are angry, when they are sad, when they are frustrated, when those things occur. It's not about diminishing those feelings, but it is about helping them learn to manage those feelings and handle those feelings when they feel that. We teach them how to self-assess and how to react in aversive situations. That's how you manage the environment. You set expectations, and then through teaching, support, and inclusion, you help students learn what appropriate conduct is within the school context. Now, we'd certainly like to get to a place where students are self-regulating and managing their own behavior, but when they aren't, we as adults are there to guide them. And I know in some circles, the whole idea of classroom management or managing behaviors gets a bad rap, but I can promise you, whenever you hear that, it's going to be drawn out of this caricature where adults, you know, this idea that adults are just trying to control students, and again, using air quotes, uh, and all of that nonsense. Don't, don't pay attention to that stuff, okay? You're not one good lesson plan or one intricate inquiry question away from eliminating all potential behavioral issues in your classroom or school. That's ridiculous. Creating a positive learning environment takes purposeful and consistent and collective effort. Leave nothing to chance. When that purposeful and consistent and collective effort is about helping students become disciplined rather than applying discipline, we will create a supportive culture where students will eventually develop the social skills they need to be successful both in and out of school. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to encourage you to think more holistically when it comes to summative judgments. I know this is easier said than done because when most of us went to school, we were immersed in the point accumulation percentage-based grading systems that attempted to be as granular and precise as possible. We know it's not, as I've outlined many times on this podcast, but that was the idea or the attempt. And even as we got into our careers, we likely started by replicating that which we experienced as students, so I, I do recognize that this can be a heavy lift for some. Now add in the fact that many teachers don't necessarily trust their professional judgment to the point where they can defend it, and now you've got the makings for a grading system that will be over-reliant on counting points and producing percentage-based grades. It's not necessarily all teachers' fault. Now if we work in isolation, never expose ourselves to what others think or know, or understand how our colleagues view excellence and interpret criteria, then we will be hesitant. If as a teacher, you're not willing to collaborate with your colleagues and align your views of excellence, then that's on you. However, if you are wanting to do that, and administration makes it difficult for you to do that, or doesn't support the idea of collaborative teams and working together to calibrate on criteria, then I am empathetic to that cause because administrators need to support that. Now, I have heard people in the past say, what if my view of excellence is vastly different than my colleagues? I got to tell you, I think that's a lot of hyperbole. First, you mean to tell me your view of excellence when it comes to a fourth grade student writing a summary is going to be way different than your colleague? I'm not buying it. This feels like one of those manufactured what-if scenarios that we can come up with that aren't very realistic. We throw them out there, but it doesn't have much grounding in reality. Will you and your colleague have some nuanced differences in how you view student assignments or demonstrations? Of course. 
Will you read something and consider it a three while your colleague might consider it a four? Sure, that can happen on single samples. That is, that's bound to happen. But this idea that your view of excellence will be way different than your colleagues is a little ridiculous. Okay, we're all dealing with the same standards. Second, now this is related to the point, is that you actually do need to get on the same page as far as what excellence looks like because we can't, as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, we can't have a situation where students' grades, scores, or levels is dependent upon who their teacher is. Okay, that's just not good enough. Now, it may happen on single samples, as we've talked about, but we need to be more consistent than we're not. Like, there'll be differences on occasion, but we should still be fairly consistent. If you and I are different in how we assess student learning 12 times, 15 times, 30 times in a row, or something like that, then we've got a problem. So we need to talk about criteria. We need to talk all about that. Now, when you think holistically, you think about the demonstration in its totality, and you begin to look at everything in context and how all of these aspects of quality relate to each other. If we think of assessment, as, as Dylan William writes, as a way of gathering evidence to make inferences about learners, then we'll begin to look at student demonstrations more holistically and think to ourselves, what can I infer about the degree to which the student understands the learning or has met the learning goal or has met the standard or whatever it is we're assessing? When you're using levels of performance rather than percentages, you think about what the degree is to which a student has met the learning goal and you judge quality. So if we were to hand an English teacher an essay and ask them to read it and judge its quality, we want them to read it and judge it in its totality. So if I gave them the essay, asked them to read it without using any marking utensils, no pen, pencil, no highlighter or electronic tool or anything like that, ask them to read the essay and simply judge its level of quality, they'd probably be able to do that rather quickly. If they read the essay and then I asked them, is that sophisticated writing, competent writing, developing writing, or are they still a novice? They could probably tell me that in five to 10 seconds. When we assess for the formative purpose, we definitely want to be more granular and look at the specific aspects of quality and look at what's strong and what needs strengthening. And that will take a little bit more time, of course. I'm not arguing in the abstract that we should spend less time on summative judgments. I'm actually making the argument from a practical perspective that if you're going to spend a disproportionate amount of time assessing your students, it is best to spend that disproportionate amount of time on the formative purpose when you can provide feedback at a time when the students can do something about the feedback and the quality of their demonstration. Now, I know some will say, well, Tom, that might work for English language arts, but it would never work for math. And that's nonsense again. If I gave a math teacher a math test and asked the teacher to consume it, looking at all the correct answers, the incorrect answers, the simple mistakes, the egregious misunderstandings, and I asked them to simply consume the entire test in its totality without putting any markings on it, and at the very end, I just asked them to judge, does the student have a deep understanding of the mathematical concepts, a proficient or competent understanding of the concepts, a developing understanding of the concepts, are they a novice or are they, are they, are they a beginner? They could do that in about five to 10 seconds. Again, in an ideal world, we would spend more time on you know, summative judgments and also be able to provide feedback and all those things, what's strong, what needs strengthening. I get that, I don't, I'm not arguing that. But time is not unlimited, and teachers often have to make choices about how to distribute their minutes. And where we're going to spend our time trying to help students improve in their demonstrations of learning. We know every teacher is busy. Every teacher is pressed for time. 
Now, having said that, it is true that some of us maybe could be more efficient with the use of our time, just saying. So we need to think about that. But by and large, teachers are busy and time is limited. So we need to be thoughtful and strategic about how we use our time. And if we're going to use our time to provide feedback, I think it's best to provide detailed feedback when there is time for the students to do something about the feedback, right? That for me would be during the formative purpose. So remember, the idea for me would be pull apart for formative assessment, but then pull back together for summative assessment. When assessing for the summative purpose, especially if you are assessing the standard in its totality, examine the demonstrations holistically and work outside in. And what I mean by that is if the level of proficiency is not clear and obvious to you, then go inside the criteria to use specific aspects of quality to determine which way to lean or how to break the tie. I honestly think sometimes we make assessment, especially grading, summative purpose, overly complicated. I mean, don't get me wrong, assessment is complex at times, but most of the complexity comes in the formative purpose. When we're trying to be precise and diagnose what's next for the learner and be specific about interventions and feedback and all that. When we're making a judgment about overall quality, it really isn't as hard as some people make it out to be. Especially when you're only using a few clearly discernible levels. Just try it sometime. Even with a test. Consume the test and ask yourself, what is the degree to which the student has met the learning goals? Or what is their depth, of, overall depth of understanding? I mean, as I've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, the type of error the student makes is going to make a big difference in terms of how you judge quality or depth of understanding. So when it comes to summative judgments, judge holistically. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast and or me on Twitter or X at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Pod. On Instagram, it's at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Podcast. It's also at Tom Shimmer Podcast on TikTok, and you can follow the podcast on YouTube. Also, please email the pod, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com if you have questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder, check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events this fall that I mentioned in the opening, as well as the link for my new book. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.